0: Hello, my name is Annie McManus. Welcome to Changes. Now, a lot of the people you'll hear on this podcast are famous people that you'll know, you know, artists and authors and activists and, you know, people who are in the public eye. But one of the things we like to do on this podcast is bring you everyday people with extraordinary stories. We've brought you people like Paddy in the past, you know, a man who was homeless and a drug addict for years and, and told the story of the change of kind of getting back off the streets into a, into housing and, and into sobriety. Uh, we've told you the story of Nigel Bromage, who um, suffered huge ideological change when he was groomed uh, by the far right and how he escaped from that and kind of got out of that back into um, a more kind of measured way of thinking. This week, I am introducing you to a rather wonderful lady called Ariel Bruce. Now, this all happened because I was in the playground with another school mom friend of mine who suggested after listening to my podcast that maybe I might want to speak to Ariel. Ariel is not someone that, you know, you will find. She's a person that kind of lives in the shadows. Yeah, she has a website because she's a professional, but she's never kind of done a podcast before. She's never uh, really been on the television or anything like that before. But she works in television, behind the scenes, specifically on a TV show called Long Lost Family. You see, Ariel's job is to find people. She's pretty much a private investigator. She doesn't call herself that. But on paper, that's what she does. She traces people. She specializes in unifying families that have been split up by adoption. And she is a qualified social worker. She's so unique in what she does. She's at the top of her game. She's been called a gene genius. The Daily Telegraph called her the Agatha Christie of the adoption world. So I reached out to Ariel on email and um, she was very kind and said she would love to do it. And you're about to hear this conversation that we had. Uh, A little background on Ariel quickly, she was born in Hampstead, her parents were Jewish refugees and at the age of 12 she was placed into care, went on to have six different foster parents. So this experience had a profound effect on her as you can imagine and really gave her the motivation to go into social work herself. Ariel has been working in the game for 40 years. She has a vast wealth of knowledge and experience and anecdotes. And you'll hear a couple of personal stories um, of of kind of work that she's done and families that she's reunited in here that really, really are heart-wrenching. We also talk about why people do and don't search for family, you know, why she would ever say no to requests to trace people and what she would like to see change in the future in terms of the care system for children. Ariel is extraordinary. Uh, She's very funny and very cheeky and mischievous and incredibly endearing for it. It's a fascinating listen. So excited to bring you this. Welcome to Changes, Ariel Bruce. Ariel Bruce, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for the time. Not at all. Uh, Okay, so you have said that you are a poacher turned gamekeeper. And I thought that was a nice place to start, because <laughs> it's such a wonderful description of what you do. So can you elaborate on, on that uh, description? Gosh,
1: um, OK, you've obviously done your homework. <laughs> um, in the simplest of terms, I was in care as a child for part of my childhood. And so there's um, something sort of about a reverse of deciding that um, in later life that I can do that job better than those that were there to look after me and therefore you know becoming qualified to do that um, so i think that's the simplest of terms but i think that also what is it sort of inherent in that is that i i often think that the sort of delinquent side of me which is you know really quite strong quite naughty you know some people have a mischievous uh, I, mean, I don't think it's to do harm but a kind of mischievousness i've been able to Put it to use, to the good. You know, I sometimes think that otherwise I would have been hanging around on street corners making mischief and instead somehow I was able to use that way of thinking about things or being somewhat defiant when I was younger to a good purpose. So I think that's what I meant when I said it.
0: And if you met someone on the street and they asked you that dreaded question, what do you do? What would you answer? (laughs) It's a
1: very difficult question, partly because it opens up always a a huge conversation that people want to have with me and most of the time that's fabulous and I'm thrilled and sometimes I'm not. When I was younger I would sometimes go to parties and say that I was a secretary and then people would say that they didn't believe me, that didn't sort of make sense (laughs) and didn't tally. That was always difficult realistically, I would say that I'm a social worker who traces missing family members.
0: And can you talk me through your process? Because, you know, people have called you a private investigator. And I'm sure, you know, depends on what type of person you are, how you will describe yourself. But you do seem to have a very unique kind of niche way of working, where your experience brings a whole new experience to the job that other people would call a private investigator job. What is your process in terms of how you work hmm well uh, i mean
1: that's a bit difficult on one level the answer to your question is give me a puzzle and i'll tell you how to solve it and quite often people phone me they say to me look um i want you to find my father so the first question i want to know is exactly what do you know about him what was his name If his name was John Smith, I can immediately compute that there are going to be 40,000 people in this country called John Smith. But if his name was a a rare one, then I'm always doing a calculation. I suppose that I see myself as a functionary in a way. My job is to make available a a series of choices Mm. to people. As you know, I, I trained as a social worker. That gave me a level of access that maybe otherwise I would not have had, and I hope as part of that training, some insight. At the heart of it, I do think that people have a right to make an informed decision about family contacts and information and knowledge about themselves, and I see myself as a functionary
0: to to do that. So let's go to your first change, Um, and and the first question that we asked you, which is about a change that you experienced in your childhood that that that's had a big impact on you so tell us about that well I come from a, a
1: rather sort of splendidly dysfunctional family right I was an only child of parents both of whom had themselves had quite tragic backgrounds my mother's mother had killed herself when my mother was two wow. my mother had been stateless um, during the 30s I come to England in 1939 as a Jewish refugee. And my father had been brought up in orphanages in this country and had not had an education. And they were both people who I have described as um, escaping forwards. They had no past. They had no background. And with that came uh, my absolute curiosity about secrets because all of their backgrounds were full of secrets. And we had no relations. Aunts, uncles, grandparents, there was nothing there. It was just a a sort of a void. So sadly, my mother was not um, able to to parent, and I ended up in in care. And I think the first change, the sort of enormous shift, was that shift both into care, but also what I learnt from it. And um, I lived with six different sets of foster parents, partly because nobody made plans within local authority for what, what was to happen to me. Mm. Uh, I was a grammar school child who wouldn't go to school. So, you know, it was problematic for them. And how old were you, Ariel, when you got taken into care? I was about 12 and a half. Right. I think what I got from that was this amazing understanding that there are many, many different worlds... You know, that you inhabit one world when you grow up and you think that that is the universe. But when you go to live in these other places, Mm -hmm. what you realise is all these different extraordinary worlds to which you don't belong but you may observe. And I think that that was amazing. My final foster parents were my then grammar school headmaster and his wife. And the change I would speak of is that I entered this family. I got five brothers, which I still have. Wow. And a mum and dad who were, you know, terrific. I mean, alien creatures to me. They were very um, upper middle class English, uh, but totally decent and completely committed. And I uh, gave them hell, as you can imagine. (laughs) You know, well, who wouldn't?
0: (laughs) How long did you stay with this family then?
1: Well, I I lived with them uh, from... Fourteen and three-quarters. Wow. My mum and dad died um, about 12 years ago, so they fulfilled a need that I had. My father is still alive, and I'm close to him, my real father. Your birth father, My my, my mother is dead. Somehow I retain that duality of one being where I come from and the other being on one level where I was going, Mm -hmm. and that was a huge change.
0: Yeah. And these brothers, tell me about these brothers. How, where did you come in the chronology of age there? So I'm one from the bottom. Right. All these big brothers must have given you a, a big sense of safety and security. Did you get that? Or?
1: Well, in fact, the older four were all the way at university or college. Got it. And so to and fro Uh But yes, and, and certainly as we've got
0: older, that's been a, of great pleasure to me. And how... Ha- how did your adoptive parents then, your foster parents, um, talk to you about your, your, your other life as such, your birth parents? Was that something that was encouraged to still know your parents and, and have that relationship with them? That's difficult to answer, you know.
1: We're talking about quite a long time ago sure. in terms of, of understanding about these things. So I don't know that it was ever particularly talked about. I knew them, you know, I knew what had happened. I had my own narrative about it. And I don't think it was ever something that was hugely sort of spoken of. I mean, I was really quite upset by that age, you can imagine, and very, very naughty. Mm. I mean, it was incredibly naughty. And I'm very dyslexic, so that was not... It was just seen as me uh, being willful at school. Um, So uh, I don't think we talked about it particularly, I think they they simply had to try to um de- deal with me, you
0: know. <laughs> and what are, what are your, what are your memories of of life before care? Like that's a, that's the first 12 years of your life. That's a significant no, you know, it, it was complicated.
1: Both of my parents are highly intelligent, politically very aware. I think I went on the, my first um Aldermaston to London march when I was 6 or 7, 50 miles, 4 days. It was a privileged upbringing in many ways. But um, sadly, my mother, you know, was really not. It it was difficult for her Mm. to, it was difficult.
0: Yeah. And so you mentioned the idea of kind of going into social work. And we'll get to that. But I'm interested in your first experiences of care and being part of the system as such and, and dealing with the authorities and them dealing with you. Like, what are your memories of those times and your first instances of, of that? Actually, in those days, social
1: workers were not uh, necessarily qualified. But there was a lovely woman, and her name was, I always remember her name, her name was Esme Henriquez. Wow. And she was she was part of, uh, there's quite a sort of well-known Henriques family. But she was absolutely terrific. And when I started out in care, I remember, going to her house and spending days of looking at books, art books, and listening to music. But later on, perhaps, I had social workers who might have found me a puzzle. It's difficult to remember. You know, I played hooky a lot. I wouldn't go to school. was obviously intelligent and did absolutely no work. I think I was quite (laughs) distressing for them. (laughs) <laughs> and,
0: and do you have memories of the, you know, you, you had quite a few foster families before you found yes. the one that you stayed at. Um, that must have been a really turbulent time.
1: Uh, yes. I mean, I think I protected myself very well by ensuring I, I mean, like now, I don't even remember their names. I mean, only one other foster family do I know who they were. And I would, you know, I know their names, where they lived and so on. The others, I have no idea. I mean, I can remember maybe a house but there are places I don't even know which town I lived in. Wow. And I think I dealt with it by completely sort of closing down from it. Yeah. And those have been valuable things to take into work. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I'd had a family of my own. I mean, I've got four wonderful children myself. After In my 30s, I started work. By which time, in many ways, in my childhood experience was you know, somewhat behind me perhaps like my own parents I was only looking forwards by that time but you know I think that it's been true that one has been able to take things from that upbringing good things really positive things uh, forwards you know I don't regret it I mean I, I truly don't regret the upbringing I had I don't think I would be the person I am had I not had it how can I regret it yeah
0: this second change then your adulthood change you you speak of a leap into education tell me about this period so when my youngest child Sasha went to school
1: uh, on her first day at school I sort of came home and did what you did, which I think I vacuumed cleaned the house, and sat down and thought, well, now what? You know, I'd had, my children are all very close in age, and uh, I must have been, when she went to school, I would have been 30 or 31. So I thought, I, I know, I'll get a job, I'll get a sort of part-time job. I got a job in a children's home, but of course. And I was sort of, felt cross about, about it, strangely the thing that made me feel cross was that it was so aesthetically displeasing you know that it was unloved unpainted Mm. beaten up and these children this was their home and i really minded about that i decided you know in my youthful wisdom that i could do this better than than they could so i better go and get a training so i went to kingston university and basically knocked on the door and said, well, I think you ought to train me as a social worker now. And they, they had a course for um, older people because they wanted people who had had an, some life experience. I did a social work training there and then did some teaching on that course and became a course tutor. I had students coming to work with me in my own setup a bit later on and i think that that leap you know that sort of the, the business about going to university doing a course getting that qualification having mucked about so much at school i don't know it was a
0: big ch- it was a change for me it was a change so you're working as a social worker you are teaching social work when and and what was your first experience of tracing someone yes it was very strange
1: i you know was bringing up the the kids and so on, and a young man came to do some painting in the house. A lad, you know, a boy of about 19 or something. And he was very silent, very quiet, nice. And at the time, I had bought a painting, and I was doing a huge amount of research on understanding who the sitter was. And this young man overheard these conversations at lunchtime about the painting, the research, and so on. And he rather shyly one day said to me, look, I'm adopted, I wonder if you could help me find my, my family, you see. Because I was going to St Catherine's house, as it was then, which was where the ledgers were in those days. Nothing, of course, was um, computerised. So one went and actually went through huge, huge ledgers. After some persuasion, I agreed I'd help him. And in fact, it was a technically quite a difficult search, but we were able to resolve it and i sort of understood that uh it fused together two very powerful elements in the way i thought and what thought i was potentially quite good at and i think that the fusion was of that it had a meaning that it was it that it had meaning to somebody not necessarily to me because I'm quite separate. I don't think I inhabit other people's searches. Mm. They are theirs. But it had this wonderful fusion of the abstract, the puzzle. And then when you've done this puzzle, like you've played a game of chess, and at the end of it, this result had a meaning to someone. Well, who wouldn't want a job like that? How's that for a fantastic job?
0: So from that moment on, did you then continue?
1: Uh, So then I talked about it at work, because I was working in a local authority uh, social services department. And somebody from within my work came and said, would I help them, because they were adopted, and then some more. And I sort of then started to think, gosh, there's this huge uh, need for this fusion of skills, And also, it was a very strange time in terms of social work practice, post-adoption services. And I'll try to explain that a bit. The law had changed in 1974 to entitle adopted people to access their original birth certificate. But the law only allowed for that. It did not make it statutory that people had a right, for example, to the information in their folders, in their files. That wasn't a right. That was at the discretion of local authorities or adoption agencies.
0: Wow.
1: So when I sort of entered into this world, 1986, that sort of time, 85, 86, um, the very social workers who had made promises both to adopting parents and to birth parents that this would never be disclosed, it would never be opened, had in many ways had the rug pulled from under their feet by what was essentially retrospective legislation. So, 75, the law not only changed, but it said, and all the promises we previously made now no longer stand. But the result was that in terms of practice for social workers, there was this underlying feeling that only unhappy people wanted to search for their families of origin. Because there wasn't a real understanding that the search was not necessarily for a person. Mm. The search was for self. Mm. Mm. You have to have been there. And I go back to that world I inhabited of being in other people's worlds, and yet not, not, not of, of them, them. Yeah. To, to have that insight. And so when I started work independently, For some social workers and for some agencies, the way I saw things which was quite rights-based was quite challenging. I also saw and felt that adoption itself had been, for that generation, for the earlier generations, not so much for now, had been the punishment that we meted out to women who had transgressed the sexual and social mores of the day. And therefore, it was a political issue. It wasn't just a sort of, you know, when you actually looked at the fact that 25,000 infant children were adopted every year uh, in the periods up to probably the early 70s, you have to look at why that happened.
0: Mm.
1: So I came to it from a feminist point of view, from an ex-care kid point of view, and I was stroppy. I mean, I'm not now, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pussycat, <laughs> <laughs> I was stroppy. Yeah. It was a very interesting time. Well now there'd be nothing that I would say or none of my views would be seen as at all.
0: Yeah, controversial. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But but then it was. So the idea the idea that people have a right to know their history was yes. was controversial. Mad, yeah. isn't it? Now in 2021 to think that.
1: Yes, but it wasn't like that. It was yeah. somehow in the gift of agencies and many agencies were very reluctant to share information and it was complicated you know i understand it 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 was and it remains complicated i mean i think there is nothing simple in post-adoption work you know it isn't simple
0: Ariel has there ever been a situation I mean okay so since then so since your 30s you've been doing this and you know I should say for listeners who ha- don't know Ariel you know you have a, a real reputation now as being one of the go-to people to that that will successfully find and reunify families you've been called by the Telegraph the Agatha Christie of the adoption world I don't know how you feel about that um, oh. Is it, and and is it the Telegraph bit that I shouldn't know?
1: Or the Agatha Christie? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and your work on Long Lost families you are the first name that comes up in the credits after Davina and, and, and Nikki, the other presenter. You know, so you're, you're really at, at the top of your game when it comes to this. But I wonder, has there ever been a situation in all of your years of experience in tracing people where you said no to someone and where you didn't feel like it was the right thing to do? Of course, Uh, Absolutely, of course. I ought to explain that I suppose it would
1: be now about 14 or 15 years ago. Gosh, I need to check that. The law again changed and it entitled members of a birth family using an adoption support agency only through a regulated system to, as it were, send a message to an adopted person to say they would welcome contact. Now, they can't be given the adopted person's new identity, but the ASA... Acts as the the go between, the honest broker, and for a time I was an ASA. So people would come to me, and a child of theirs had been adopted, and now that child was sort of eighteen and one week, and they would say they wanted me to find that young person and ascertain their wishes. And my my counsel was always the same, and it was put your name on the contact register, which is a government run register, which marries up people if both parties are on it, make sure there's a letter on the file, on the adoption file, so if that young person goes looking for their file they see that there's a letter a current letter Mm -hmm. but you know, at age 18 who wants extra parents I mean they're probably busy trying to separate themselves from the ones they've got and it's just, it's not wrong, it's just not smart Mm and much better to wait five years eight years until that young person is more established more separate from their adopters more able to make a decision for what they want rather than worrying about the impact to, as much on their, their their lovely parents so so yes in those circumstances i have you know often declined that work and there will be other instances where I think, for example, let us say a grandmother comes to me and says, I want you to trace my grandchild who was placed for adoption. And I say, so what, what about the, your child, the mother of right. hmm. the adopted person? And the, the grandmother says, no, 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 they don't want any contact at all. They would hate it. Well, I have to then say, you know, it's complicated, isn't it? Because on the one hand, this person who hasn't gone out looking themselves yet is going to get a sort of d a very complicated message, which they haven't asked for. If they go out looking and they get that complicated message, I understand that. But this is a very bittersweet message. And I'm not sure that I want to maybe the young, the person is quite young or something I might say and the grandmother is quite young I might say why don't you wait 10 years and see if they come looking I don't yeah. feel comfortable with that so so there are quite a lot of instances where I think I mean somebody else might be prepared to do the work but I'm just not comfortable with it
0: yeah and it's interesting I think that gives you a very unique perspective which is your it it feels the, the, like learning about you and and how you do things that you have this kind of holistic approach uh, in terms of the emotional support that you know is needed along a journey like this and the kind of safeguarding of, of of the psychological experience of this as well. Like, how much of your social work do you think feeds into this process of tracing? Oh and, yeah, and making those big decisions. Yeah, I mean, of course,
1: you know, I I don't work alone. So at all times yeah. I'm working with an ASA support agency yeah. um, and sometimes with two or, or more mm. so you know um, and of course as all as all social workers I I get supervision I have dilemmas I'm thrown into situations where I'm not quite certain what is the right mm. thing um, and need to talk through that with somebody uh, wiser than I am so but, but of course, uh, I wouldn't be doing the work I do in the way I do it if I wasn't a social worker. And my registration is kept up to date. You know, I, I think of myself as a social worker first mm, and think that what the, the task that I do as a social worker is I trace missing family members.
0: I don't think of them as separate. Ariel, I, I know every situation is completely unique but is there patterns in terms of the people who contact you and and their needs and who they are as people as well you know you said that sometimes people are looking for people who've just turned 18 for some reason in my head I always assumed that it would always be people who are older in their lives having had more time to think and reminisce and 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 look back at who they are that that would be approaching you for finding missing family members but is there a pattern in terms of who the people are that contact you
1: I think that this traditional wisdom is that when people have children of their own, that there's the sudden trigger that they have this child who often is the first person to whom they are genetically connected that they've ever seen. So it's a very powerful thing, number one. And secondly, that child may look like or have attributes that they don't quite get or quite see, and then is a huge trigger to to, to search. The other time that is very classic is um, when people often don't search because they feel it would be disloyal to their adopters. Sure. And when their adopters die, people feel free to do so. Um, and that's a sort of... Curious business, of course, because usually, not always, the birth parents are younger than the adopters. Often one can find the living birth parent, but that's another trigger time, you know, an amazing trigger time. Most recently, the um, growth of leisure DNA, so things like people interested in their family trees, putting themselves on Ancestry, 23andMe and so on, has opened up this amazing, amazing thing. All through my career, I would have foundlings come to me and say, could I help them find their families of origin? And I, I wouldn't take them on. I mean, I just thought it would be wrong to offer hope where I knew there was none. And suddenly, in the last three, four years, were able to resolve the the mysteries of the birth of foundlings. So a child that was left somewhere by usually a very distressed parent, um, we can now find those parents and perhaps navigate uh, some sort of conclusion. Certainly we can offer to the foundling information, knowledge about where they come from, who their families of origin were. And sometimes we can affect contact. And I think that is, for me, it is, amazing it's just an extraordinary thing in some ways magical
0: absolutely it's so mad your job like in terms of you're just opening doors for people aren't you you're just unlocking doors and and allowing people these huge revelatory experiences and and also these whole upheavals of self- worth of 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 having thought they weren't wanted to then being wanted and or or understanding that they were wanted understanding context and how are you not an emotional wreck (laughs) i don't
1: know (laughs) well i think that's the the business about um seeing oneself as a as a as a functionary in some ways i think that's quite a useful word i know the emotions that people have are are not mine you know i think that's they're separate
0: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Can I ask you about the mother and baby homes in Ireland? Because obviously that's been so big in the news and and, and something I, I see and follow closely is this whole revelation over there of the realities of, of what happened in those homes. Um, have you ever had to deal with any of stories re- regarding those people?
1: Yes, I mean, I've, I've worked on quite a lot of uh, those stories, albeit now some time ago, because I think there's a more mm. unified both help and groups that are together. But I remember a particular piece of work I did, and it always has stuck with me. A birth mother came to me saying I had a child and I lived in the nursery with the child and it was at one of these homes. Yeah. And because the child had um, something, I think it might have been a cleft or something, that needed a small repair done, hmm. he wasn't adopted as, when he was very young and she worked in the, in the laundry and would go every night and creep in and be allowed by the nursery nurse to see her, her baby, who knew her, knew her as mum. Mm. And one day when the child was three, she was taken in the car with the child and the child was removed from her forever and she never saw him again. And I was asked to, to find him. The story was he'd gone to America that was the story. That's what she said to me. So I realised he must have had to have a passport to go. Right. So I contacted the passport office in Dublin. This would have been now, oh, you know, 1990. And I said to them, look, you issued a passport in this name. Can you tell me, please, when it ran out and where it ran out? You know, yeah. what what happened to it? And I got back a stock letter letter saying... um. No, we can't help you. And then I got a phone call from somebody, I assume from the passport office, from a man. And he said, you know that inquiry you made? I said, yes. He said, well, the passport was sent back from this part of America. And we got notification. And this is the name you're looking for. And the phone went down. And I never knew who it was. And if he's there, thank you very much. And I was able to find not the young man, but his adopting parents. Right. When I got to his adopting parents, this was their story. They said they had been told that this boy was an orphan. He had no one. They had no idea that his mum was with him for three years. They said when they took him on the flight, he... Stretched out in such terror at being with these strangers in an aeroplane going to, and he never really recovered. And oh, he had had a lifetime of psychological problems. In fact, and when we found him, they were just—they were in touch, they loved him. Hmm. Uh, they were just about in touch with him. But he lived a life of uh, a survival life in an, in another town. You know, it's completely separate with no, he'd not been able to make a family or or have a job or anything. Yeah. And it was quite extraordinary. And his parents paid for him to come back to London to meet his mother and his sister and his family. And it was very moving, actually. It was moving, just the thought of this child uh, and the dislocation he had suffered. And that his adopters... Had adopted him in good faith. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think that happened a lot. And that amazing man, somewhere in the <gasps> it's in amazing, Ireland, isn't it? That one phone call just that changed one phone call. So many people's lives.
1: And of course, so many people had their you know the information on the birth certificates are altered and changed and incorrect and so on. DNA will make will be making a difference. Um, I mean, it's in its infancy to some degree. Yet, but it will make a difference, and actually, quite interesting partly because um, so many Irish records were lost in the 20s, and partly because there's such a powerful Irish diaspora, you know, in in the States, in Canada, in Australia, um, and they're all interested in their backgrounds. In fact, the uptake on things like Ancestry DNA and 23andMe amongst the Irish community is very high I and mean, it's great I'm, I've always gone to Ireland I mean right since I started work I have mad adventures being driven by <laughs> wonderful crazy drivers uh, you know round tiny roads in Kerry uh, what well, to go and find a village where a birth mother came from I, I love Ireland but um, yeah. certainly the
0: DNA way of doing things will be helping. Ariel um I wanted to ask you about the falling rates of adoption now and how there seems to be a very downward trajectory in terms of uh, how people how many people are adopting and uh, I can imagine there's various reasons for that, but w- what what is your opinion on that and, and and how do you think it could change moving forwards? Well, I mean the obvious
1: reasons for it are firstly, there's no social stigma now if a woman gets pregnant and wants to keep her child there's yeah. not a che. Nowadays, perhaps people use surrogates or IVF and so on to try very hard to have their own babies. If you're not going to have the availability of babies, the children that are available to you are perhaps children who have had a very difficult time within their the families. What often they need is incredible amount of support after the adoption itself. I think there's a realization about this now more and more that when children are placed for adoption who have come from a difficult background it's only the beginning of the story what we now need to be putting in place and I'm sure we do you know is probably therapeutic relationships support for the parents support for the wider family support for the child very complicated I think
0: modern adoptions are very complicated As someone who's experienced many different iterations of of family life, what is your definition of family now?
1: I don't think I have a very clear definition of it because clearly in my own life, some of my family is not of my genes, whereas and my children very much are, and I have grandchildren and so on. You know, I've been incredibly lucky. I'm sort of surrounded by varying degrees of separation if you like and then I have friends who have been lifelong friends I mean I have a a friend who lives around the corner from me who's been my friend since I was five Uh, I mean I've got lifelong friendships they are also you know my family I'm not sure what family is I think family is those who you love probably
0: yeah um Ariel you know the children's home that you were cross yes Did you ever be able to go back and do anything about it? Um, It closed. Not
1: as a a result of anything I did, I hasten to add. (laughs) I didn't go back later and fire it. When I worked there, um, one of the things that struck me about it was that it was this enclosed world where, in a sense, the community did not come in. And I went to the local authority involved and said look can we have money for paint and can we have some decent furniture and could we make a snug for the? can we do this and that and the other and they said no there's no money so I then thought right what we need is to have a a friends of this particular home and so suddenly members of the community came in and the place got painted and the place got more comfortable there would be many things there that were still incredibly wrong I mean, for example there there was a family there, and the only reason that they were in care and it used to be the case was that their fam their parents were homeless. The law was that children had to be kept in a safe place, so in those days, you would take the children into care and just let the parents fend for themselves. you know there were many things that were structural that over which i didn't did not and could not do very much, but certainly it got painted and they got record players and they got nice furniture and so on. And that was as a result of asking the community to get involved. It was sort of difficult for the local authority to complain about it. I, I knew what I was doing.
0: <laughs> I love it. Ariel, last question. What would you like to change? About yourself or the world around you, moving forwards, looking ahead.
1: I mean, it's such a sort of vast question.
0: I know, I, I know, know. I'm how sorry. To it.
1: I mean, <laughs> I, I think I rather stupidly, when you asked me before, said, "Oh yes, a wall piece and a gin and tonic." And there is a sort of truth, a terrible truth in it. I love you it. Know, well, one is the banal. It's the micro and you the know, micro. One is the banal yeah. and the kind of the here and now, and the other is. Something so vast that it's impossible um what would I like to see that I can sort of grasp and see as a possibility? Well, I think in this country that the value that we put on children and by that I mean the quali- you know the kind of input into education the money that mothers get, the support that families get, the support it- to bring up children that-, that families get is less than it could be and it should be in such a wealthy country as this. So, I think that part of the sort of structures that I would like to see uh, different would be that. Yeah. We have allowed poverty in this country, we have allowed thousands of children to be brought up in po- poverty. Um, I don't understand why. Mm. And I think that's about, you know, what as a country our
0: commitments are and what, what, what we value. Ariel, um, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure to speak to you. Oh, it's fine. Thank you very much. Ah, Ariel. I absolutely loved talking to her. I was transfixed by her. I find her voice quite mesmerising, quite hypnotic, just in how she spoke. She was so eloquent. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed listening to her. And you can still watch Long Lost Family on ITV. I watched it and cried half a pint of tears in the two episodes i watched it is unbelievable uh, in terms of how it pulls on your heartstrings so yeah let us know what you thought of ariel and her work i love to hear it i love to hear your comments last week was the brilliant author candice carty williams uh shout out to alex christoffi on twitter who said reeling from the revelation that candice can read a book in two hours teach me your ways i beg you and selena who said this was another wondrous episode what candice says about grief is so true. It does come and sit by you and it can be beautifully reassuring. It walks with you and keeps you together forever. I loved it. Thank you so much. Candice was so generous and uh, it meant for a really emotional um conversation so go back and listen to that if you haven't yet and of course go and rate and review and subscribe it's uh, so nice to have you with us and listening to every episode week in week out i'm back next monday with the one and only billy piper child pop star award-winning actress um tv creator writer director she is an incredible woman and uh, it's a very honest and fun conversation i can't wait for you to hear it this episode was produced by louise mason with research from Layla Simone Springer through Rethink Audio, and I'll see you next time. Bye! Small
1: details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.